Basically, I want to say, look what I saw, right? If you capture a timeless photograph, then you know, it doesn't matter when you are showing it to someone, it will always invoke some emotions. Uh, it's easy to replace, you know, an X-T2 or X-Pro so-and-so, or, but it's hard to replace, you know, a small compact camera. Hello, fellow photographers. In this episode, I'm talking with Samuel Lentaro Hopf, AKA Samuel Street Life, about street photography, gear, tips for taking photos, YouTube and much more. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Make sure you're subscribed if you want to be notified when I post a new episode. And also there is one thing I would love you to do. I would be very thankful if you could go and give this podcast 5 star rating and the review. If you like this content and you think other people might enjoy it as well, feel free to take a screenshot and throw it out on your Instagram story or share it with your friends. In case you would like to listen to shorter episodes more frequently, there is a new podcast called Best Of About Photography and it is updated daily with highlights from the interviews. All the information can be also found in the description. Now, without any further ado, let's talk about photography. My guest today is a photographer, YouTuber and also recently a father, Samuel Lintaro Hopf. Thank you for joining me, Samuel, and congratulations. Thank you, man. And thanks for uh, inviting me. How are you doing today? Good, good. This is uh, a rare opportunity for me to uh, have some free time because, as you know, uh, when you become a father, it's free time is uh, very precious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. Uh, the topic I would like to start with is photography. And I know you had been taking pictures during pandemic. And of course, before that, now when things are getting slowly back to the normal, what is the state of street photography in Germany? And is it different than it was before? Yeah, uh, of course, this, the scenery changed. Um, and the things I usually look for uh, are not happening that often. Um, people are not doing much on the streets. Um, now everything is kind of open here in Germany. So now is the best time actually since last year to do street photography in Germany. But I just moved out of the city. I don't live in the city anymore. Just became a father. So my summer is pretty much changing diapers. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I guess that now it's a good time to do street photography. And for me last year, I, as a lot of other photographers, uh, I assume, I just documented what's going on around me, my neighborhood, uh, also the city I live in, in Hamburg, or I lived in. Um, so last year I was already taking different photos than I usually take. So this year is not that much different. Um, maybe I'm trying to shoot. Um, I'm not really looking at what's going on in the city or in the world. I mean, of course, I look what's going on in, in the world right now. but because I'm not really part of it now at the moment, I can't do much. I can't document it how I did it last year. Last year I was spending uh, most of my weekends in, in the city, not during the hard lockdowns, of course, but um, there was so much going on um, as everywhere in the country, uh, in, the, in, the, in the world. So I was mainly photographing protests and 
you know, whatever happened in the city. And there was always something unique happening, something that I wanted to capture. But this year, uh, I think everyone is very tired and got used to the to the new normal. Uh, and everyone wants to enjoy life like they used to enjoy it. So for me, uh, even if I would be in the city right now, I think I would not think too much about capturing something unique that is unique for 2021 because there hasn't been much except maybe the Olympic Games or um, we have uh, the elections coming up in Germany. So that could be something interesting. But not for me at the moment, because, you know, I'm in nature right now and I, <laughs> I, I don't have any people around. Me. I live in a small village with uh, 1500 people, I think. So I can probably meet everyone within a week. So I don't know how my photography will change. But at the moment, I'm not doing really any street photography. Yeah, I think I can hear our nature in the background. Yeah, you can probably hear my, my, my 10 backyard chickens that I suddenly got from my, from the previous owner of this house. Um, so, yeah, we have we have apples in the backyard. We have hazelnuts. Uh, there are some squirrels running around stealing the hazelnuts. Uh, a lot of insects. Um, so maybe I should focus more on nature. <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, in the preparation. I was tempted to watch again the movie The Chicken People. I don't mm. know if you saw it. <laughs> uh, no, I have never saw it. You should do it. It's a yeah. documentary about people raising chickens. Ah, that's, that sounds like something I need to watch uh, <laughs> right now. Anyways, I know you uh, came back from Japan, right? And if you can compare street photography in general in Germany and in Japan, and what do you prefer? The easy answer is I would prefer Japan because Germany, uh, Japan is such a uh, has such a strong camera culture. Um, you see so many people carrying cameras around, and usually they are okay with you taking photos. Um, in Germany, it's a little harder to photograph openly. Um, you have to be a little bit smarter about it. Um, not sneaky. That is not the way to do it in Germany, at least. Um, but it's a little harder. And I think for for anyone who visited Germany um, coming from the US, maybe, or an Asian, from Asian countries, they always told me that, yeah, it is, it is a lot harder. And, uh, you know, you get you get asked uh, more times um, about what you're doing. Personally, I maybe I got asked once in my lifetime here in Germany, because the way I take pictures is more you know, I don't want to say sneaky, but, you know, I use the GR, as you know. Uh, it's so small, you know, you look like a tourist taking a photo on, on the iPhone or phone. And then uh, I usually go to places that are a little bit more crowded. Um, but I also enjoy taking pictures in my neighborhood. But uh, So, yeah, I, I definitely prefer Japan because you can be more relaxed. Uh, you meet other street photographers. Um, in Germany, it, it's it's getting more and more popular. I have a feeling that in in my hometown or my ex ex hometown, there are more street photographers now than they used to in like two or three years ago. But usually on a on a Saturday, you don't encounter other photographers, so you always feel a little bit like you're on your own uh, terms. 
on your own mission. Um, so I, I, I actually prefer meeting other photographers, not necessarily like shooting in groups that never really works out, but I really love having like one good friend that I can meet and go to the same location and then maybe split and come back uh, to talk about, you know, locations and spots we saw. So um, that is easier in Japan because when I go to, for example, Tokyo, uh, Shibuya, you always see another street photographer and you usually, uh, you usually know each other. So, you you know, you, you can always ask, you know, how is it today? Like, oh, there's something going on in this uh, area. You should check it out. And you get all these, you know, local um, hints, uh, info, informations. And here in Germany, uh, it's, yeah, you're always doing a solo mission. So, okay. But I have to say, not to make this answer too long, but German people um, or European people in general, uh, they, they, they tend to show their emotions more openly. If they're angry at you, they show it. If they love you, they show it. Uh, usually they show that they're angry more than that, that they <laughs> help you. <laughs> but in Japan, no one is really speaking to you um, without asking or something. You know, they, you, you, you never speak to people in, 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 uh, in their convenience stores. You know, you just go there, buy your stuff and leave. But in, Germ in Germany, you can always talk to um, a restaurant owner or, you know, street musicians. Uh, yeah, so in, in Japan... It's easier, but it's also lonely in, in, a, in a different way because in Germany or in Europe, you have people expressing their emotions. So it's hard for me. I, I wish people in Japan would be more open like in, in Europe. Then uh, it would make, yeah, it would even make more fun shooting there. And I know you had been traveling a lot uh, before pandemic, right? What is the best city or country for street photography or your most favorite one? Um, usually I say uh, London. Uh, I really love uh, London. Uh, there's a good street photography community. Um, just aesthetically, I like how the city looks like. Um, the buildings, the architecture, people are often, um, you have like very fancy dressed people, right? Uh, very British, uh, and I think the the uh, British people they really love their country, and I love going to countries where people are very proud of their country. You know what I mean? And in in Germany, we have this German, oh, what's it called in English? It's like uh, guilt. Okay. <laughs> you know? German guilt. Not to Never be proud be too, of the country too much. Yeah, don't be proud of your country too much, and I think it's. Uh, it's good to remember the history, but it's also good to, I think it's healthy to to look at the good sides of a country and be proud of where you're coming from. And um, So I like, for example, the Oktoberfest in Germany, even though there are many tourists. But um, uh, yeah, I like countries that celebrate their culture. And uh, yeah, London is uh, just a very easy city to take photos in. Um, but honestly, I think there are better cities out there. I just need to discover them. And I always want to, I really want to go to uh, like uh, uh, Russia or East Europe. Mm -hmm. Never been to Russia. Um, 
man, I have to go to Russia. I always say <laughs> I want to go to Russia. I never go to. Uh, so, so far, yeah, London. And I've, I've been to New York, but New York is so... Like everyone takes photos in New York, right? So as a tourist, what can you do? And Paris. Uh, yeah. Or Paris. Paris is also very photogenic. Um, and the people are very, uh, you know, very French. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I would say definitely Paris and, and London. Yeah. And then Tokyo. And, Tokyo. and maybe some Russian city. Yeah. And other Japanese towns, cities like uh, Kyoto, maybe. Yeah. Uh, so, so my uh, wife uh, comes from Osaka, so I always okay. go to uh, Osaka or Tokyo. So I was born in in Tokyo area or uh, Kanagawa prefecture. Um, so I always go to Osaka and Tokyo. And um, honestly, I think I prefer Osaka at the moment because mm -hmm. Tokyo is so busy everyone is going to work and no one has time to relax in osaka uh it's a little different uh, osaka is uh, a food city they have a lot of delicious food street food um fashion is i think also very big in osaka and um you have a little bit of this um uh, steampunk or cyberpunk uh, aesthetic at night <laughs> It's it's very cool uh, city and people are very open, very different from Tokyo people. So, yeah, maybe Osaka. I like Osaka more than Tokyo. Yo. I feel more like a local in Osaka than in, than in Tokyo. Ah, okay. Uh, is street photography the most difficult genre of photography? Yeah, it's super easy. You just need a nice wall and then you wait for someone to enter the frame. <laughs> <laughs> you capture the good, the best moment. Uh, I think street photography is, um, it's easy to get into, right? It's very easy to start street photography. Everyone who has a camera can, can do it. But I think getting good at it or just being comfortable doing street photography. Many people or beginners, they, they have a hard time feeling comfortable doing street photography. I think that takes some time and practice, but um, I would say it's a very accessible and easy genre of photography. But if I compare it to wedding photography, for example, um, I shot some weddings in the past and uh, I'm actually going to shoot a wedding this Saturday too, after a long time. But okay. uh, weddings are super hard as everyone who shoots wedding weddings know and i always said oh wedding photography is the hardest job ever <laughs> or re wedding filmmaking and street photography is kind of hard but at least when you don't get the shot no one will be mad at you right <laughs> but when you shoot a wedding you can't miss the shot so the pressure is just much higher and um I think these two genres are very comparable, like a wedding photographer, you know, you have to be aware of everything that's going around you. You have to anticipate what is coming next. And um, so I don't know what is more difficult, street photography or wedding photography. I would say very good street photography is very hard. But wedding photography is uh, pretty much up there because so. of the pressure. Because of the pressure and 
yeah, the pressure. And it's all about these moments you have to capture. It's, it's, you know, you only have one shot of, you know, the bride and um, what do you say? The groom. The you groom, see? yeah, bride and groom for the kiss. And, you know, they're exchanging the ring. Then you can't you can mess up. On the street, you can always wait. Uh, if you don't get the shot, you can say, oh, maybe if I wait a little longer, I can try again. And, but uh, that's the, I think the, the thing that is interesting about street photography is that you always have these things that, you know, don't, don't make sense at first, but you're trying to make sense of it. And then when it comes together, it's, you know, that, that seeing that, capturing that, that is a skill that, um, I think wedding photographer could do street photography also, but uh, it's a little different. Is it like documentary photography, the wedding photography? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I see street photography as another form of documentary photography. I know that a lot of the street photographers actually don't like the term street photography as well. It's because it is such a weird word, right? It's street photography sounds like um, you're just doing photos on the street, but then there are people doing photos in restaurants or uh, in, inside the subway. And then is it but it's still street photography, right? Or you can take photos of buildings and that can be called street photography. Um, so what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were talking about if the street photography is the most difficult genre. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it is if you want to become good at it or it's hard to 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 develop your own voice within your street photography it's much easier to start you know fashion or portrait photography and then develop a portfolio that it's easier to work on a you know on a style or aesthetic when you know what your subject is but on the street um, first you have to find the subjects you have to get good at capturing it uh, you have to have good social skills if if you know if you want to be more intimate and close up to people so there's a lot of skills attached that you have to also master next to just taking pictures so in that sense i think street photography is hard and complex but um, it also depends on on the people uh, on the person who's doing it because you know some people are just social creatures and outgoing an introvert might have more difficulties i consider myself an introvert so uh, it is for me harder to uh, to be up and close all the time um, but you can still learn it so the answer is yes <laughs> <laughs> uh, when you go out do you have a plan in mind what you're going to do or do you just go and outside and think something will happen mm, i wish i could say that i always have a plan or project in mind when i go out but um uh it's hard to answer that because up to up to up until now i always went out and see what happens and i like i like that about street photography that I don't need to have a plan. I can just let, you know, the world open up for me and I can, I, I will see what I will get. 
And that search is what's so exciting. But um, I also know that I can't or it's harder to to grow a body of work that is, you know, has a cohesive message or or yeah, or a vision. Uh, if you just go out random on random days uh, taking random pictures. But on the other side, you can do that and later reflect and see, you know, what am I drawn to and then uh, start a project out of what you have been already capturing. Because I find it hard to come up with project or ideas before I even approach it or start it, you know. So what a lot of people do is, for example, take photos in their city uh, without any specific project in mind. But if you do it long enough, you can at least do a project or book about your city. Okay. And so, yeah, that is something I try to do with my own home uh, town. But I travel too much. <laughs> that is the problem. And I, I, I wish I could say I have like projects running, uh, ongoing projects. Um, what I did last year, uh, I kind of considered a project um, because I was, you know, documenting the changes on in, in in my city. It's not a unique project. A lot of photographers were doing that, but it's something that I was able to do and. Um, I think for street photographers uh, who might search for like a purpose um, because a project like why do you need to do a project right you can do a project because you want to look good on your website having a nice body of work but I think from from my point of view when uh, I see street photography also as um, kind of um, uh, documentation of you know the the times of where, where you're living in. Um, so whenever I take pictures, even though I don't have a project in mind on that day, maybe, uh, if I see something that could potentially be interesting in the future, then I take it, even though it might not be an interesting photograph. So for me, street photography is very much like observing, capturing, documenting, and then later see if I can make something out of it. And I think one day there will be something com coming out of it. But uh, at this moment, <laughs> uh, because I'm not doing street photography at the moment, um, I'm thinking about project ideas. And uh, that's one regret I have starting street photography and not having some side projects. No. Okay. And but in yeah. terms of, for example, location, or do you have something like, when you go out and you just, you know, can't get into the zone, you are just kind of like, I don't really know if I'm going to take any pictures. I'm not in the mood. Do you have uh, like locations, you know, that you can go and you like the scene there or do you? Because some people even research uh, the location on the Google Street View or something like that. So they mm. know what they can expect. So I was wondering if you do something like that. Yeah, I definitely do that if I'm in a city I've never been to. Um, for sure, I need to know roughly where I have to go. Um, I also don't No, Usually when I go to a new city, I just go to the busiest place first, just to have a feel of um, 
yeah how how busy the city can get so i know the the, the rhythm of the city and then i look for other places that um might be more um you know personal and have more character because every city has uh the, their main tourist place right where tourists go usually it's like a town hall or something um and here uh, in hamburg my ex-hometown uh <laughs> it was the uh, the town hall which was the main spot but it's not really a place where the locals go and the pictures you capture there are aren't that unique to the city it's uh, if you can't come to hamburg you have to go to the fish market or harbor and um, not necessarily in the city center so uh, but if you're going to a new city and you don't know that then uh, i think most people look for the, the most touristy places because uh, this is where the, the streets are the busiest but um, i tend to look for um, yeah just areas that are have more character um, but i also go to the touristy places um, first so i get it out of my way take my tourist photos uh, and then maybe if you meet some locals you can always ask them and uh, but i think researching up uh, beforehand is, is important especially when you when you spend a whole day walking um it you know, uh, at the end of the day, my feet always hurt a lot. I also have uh, flat uh, feet, so I I have insoles for my for my feet, and um, uh, I also still suffer from a, suffering from a um, ankle uh, injury I had uh, during my skateboarding uh, years. So I can't walk for a long time, uh, and if I search. Uh, if I explore a city on uh, by walking, you know, I don't want to spend a full day walking in places where, you know, there's nothing going on. and um, But there's always something going on. And at the same time, it's also good to have to let let it flow and explore the city. That is, you know, a lot of fun. But for me, because my feet, uh, <laughs> it's not they, they are not so healthy anymore. Uh, I, I try to research beforehand where to go and then have some leeway to explore other areas so, so that is you, my strategy do you check for photogenic places or maybe like famous pictures that had been taken you know in in, in the history or on the instagram or you know uh, to save some uh, time yeah sometimes um usually i if I don't know any famous photo from that area, I think that might be even better because then I don't have any, uh, how do you say, preconceived notions about the place. And I think the I, w I don't want to visit a new city and then already have, you know, you know, a, a view of the city in my Shot head. List. Yeah, shot list. No, no, no shot list. <laughs> I might, I might um, write down like a shot list of, um, of like um, specific characteristics of the city that I want to explore. You know, not like oh, silhouettes, 
uh, at this train station, you know, on, on this time, but more like, um, you know, uh, winter vibes uh, in Canada or something like that. Or, <laughs> you know, something that is exciting to explore, but not like a, a motif, you know. Okay. And when you come back from your photo walk or from your project, what is your process? Do you edit pictures right away or do you let them, you know, marinate, wait for... I, I show you what I do, okay? So when I come home with my camera, I have my camera usually in here, my GS3. I come home, I do this, I do that, and then I do something else. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I don't... Like if I had an amazing productive day and I know I have like the best shot of my life, then of course I check it out and, you know, do a backup, but, uh, that re doesn't really happen. Um, you can see my highlights in the background, okay. <laughs> two photos that I'm proud of the rest. <laughs> mm. Uh, so usually I just come home, put my camera away. Um, and that's it. Uh, I might come back to my photos. When the card is full is usually when I look at my photos. Okay. Um, but it takes a while until my SD cards are full. So, yeah. And do you That's have any my rules process. When you actually edit your uh, photography, do you have any rules about how much editing is too much editing? Do you oh, have yeah, any, like, yeah. You know, straightening the pictures or, uh, yeah. you know, changing color scheme and such? Uh, so... Um, so I shoot mainly black and white at the moment and last year I shot uh, exclusively black and white but uh, when I shoot color for example I'm really picky about the colors how they look and I used to you know slap and slap on presets you know Kodak Portra preset and but when I look at these photos now um, I find them too overly edited you know they, they don't look and realistic to me and what i like is um it's just good colors um but not i don't want someone looking at my photos and say oh nicely edited you know this is <laughs> oh, yeah. not what you want um but of course i want to optimize my photographs and what i usually do is you know straighten the horizon maybe um uh, check out how my uh, tone curve if i can increase some contrast um, and I like to have, you know, some very deep blacks and some almost crushed uh, whites in the frame. And with my black and white, um, I tend to have a lot of tones uh, in, in my photos. Uh, or oh, this is what I want. Uh, so, yeah, black and white takes a little bit more time because you're converting a color photo and then you can play with color channels. And, but usually I, I choose my cameras based on uh, the output of the sensor. So if if someone likes, you know, Fuji, then they probably don't edit their photos much. Okay. And this is the case for me with my GS3. Um, I guess I can talk about it. I, I used to own a, a Leica M262. I sold that camera, uh, unfortunately or fortunately. But that had amazing colors. So I kind of regret it. Um, but when I'm happy with the camera, then I don't edit the photos much. Let's say I take I take maybe five minutes or ten minutes 
on a photo. Okay. Uh, until it's like ready for print uh, or finalized, and then always save um, the DNG and the and the JPEG. JPEG in RAW seems to be fine. Uh, with black and white, um, because I use, um, to be honest, I'm also a little bit lazy when it comes to editing. And lately, I'm just using the JPEGs of my cameras and just add in more contrast or change the tone curve. Uh, but when I really want to spend time on a photo, then I use uh, silver effects for my black and white photos. Uh, and then I might take like 20 minutes, 15 to 20 minutes per photo. But because it takes so much time, I only do it when uh, when it's part of a project or series of images. So, yeah, five or ten minutes max. <laughs> okay. And uh, looking at some of your older pictures, do you think photographs are developing character over time? Like, uh, mm. for example, pictures with cars, right? As, as the pictures get more dated when we for example look at pictures taken a long time ago and we see those beautiful old cars right we and then the photographer who was taking the picture was probably like well the cars are getting in my way like i am now when mm, yeah. i take a picture and uh we also or i also look at smartphones uh in a such a way so what is your take on dated photographs and what do you think about people who are chasing so-called timeless photographs? Yeah, um, I, I've, I haven't been doing street photography for that long that I can say that if I look back to my first street photographs that I can see big changes. People used to use smartphones when I started street photography. So, um, but uh, I mean, I'm doing photography much longer than that. But yeah, when I look at old photos from like 10 or 20 years ago, I definitely see differences and, uh, you know, fashion changes. Uh, yeah, our gadgets change, changes, um, how the city, uh, the architecture. Um, I think it's more obvious uh, seeing the, the, the uh, pre-COVID times and then the post-COVID times. This is where you see, you know, a big change on the street. But I'm always, I was always for taking pictures of people using their smartphone. It's just part of how our society is, right? And do I wish I could travel back and shoot next to, you know, Brisson and in Paris or whoever and take pictures of people being, you know, normal social people, not <laughs> online? Uh, yeah, of course. Uh, that would be, you know, I dream about that, <laughs> you know, but it's it's just not realistic. And that goes back to, you know, the, the, the notion of street photography being part of a documenting process. I capture whatever I see when people, uh, if people are on their phones, they're on their phones. Um, I don't wait for them to look up somewhere else because that's how the streets look like. Uh, the same with the, all the mask, um, masks. I, we do miss, you know, facial expressions in, in photos. And I feel the same, you know, I really don't like seeing masks on photos. But that's what how it is nowadays. And 
I think we should capture that. Um, I was asking uh, that because the photographs you mentioned, um, those two right behind you, right? They pretty hmm. much look timeless, right? Oh, thanks. <laughs> yeah, the the one with the with the boy or or the the child, and then the people going to swim in the lake or river or whatever. Yeah. Oh yeah, this is. Um, you know, a very uh, kitsch, romantic <laughs> photograph, uh, which, you know, could be taken any time, I guess. Um, if you capture a timeless photograph, then, you know, it doesn't matter when you are showing it to someone, it will always invoke some emotions. And I think um, it's, it's, I mean, the photo I just showed you, I guess you can say it's a timeless um, moment because it's hard to date that picture but I actually try to look for photos that include um, uh, the times we are living in uh, you know have some kind of element that dates the picture um, because I'm as I said I'm not really out there to take a visually interesting photo of course I want to take good looking photographs but um I'm more interested in seeing something that describes, you know, photography for me is just documenting what's around me. And to be honest, I think we all just take pictures because we, first of all, want to want to remember our life and what's happened. And photo, phot photography definitely does that. And I think we might also take pictures, maybe because you know that once you leave this place, you will leave behind, you know, what you saw, Legacy. what Martin saw, what, you know, what <laughs> Samuel saw, what whoever saw. And I think, I mean, for me, uh, if, you know, I'm completely honest here, of course, I want to leave something behind and I don't want to be forgotten. This is like something that humans, <laughs> I think, yeah. deep inside have this, you know, feeling of uh, feeling not important, but leaving something behind you just you don't want to be just someone who lived and you know consumed and <laughs> spent money and that's it so yeah a timeless photo uh you know speaks for your artistry maybe for your for your aesthetic but i think capturing these um photos that can be dated um also add to your legacy if you want to say it like that because um, I want to show my photos and basically I want to say, look what I saw, right? Look what I saw. Um, and I don't want to explain the photograph. You know, I want people to look at the photo and maybe associate some emotion or state of their, uh, or some, uh, um, some chapter, a chapter of their life they can relate to, you know, taking photos of, for example, a newborn, if you have, children for the first time like of course i'm going to take pictures of my son now um and these pictures are mostly for myself but later someone can look at them and you know reflect on how it is to be a small <laughs> child <laughs> so i don't know it was a long answer but i like photos that can be dated but i also like photos that uh, are timeless yeah one of your recent projects was a year of taking pictures only in black and white, right? What are your takeaways? Do you think, was it a good idea? 
wait for my upcoming uh, video about it. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, uh, so that, that was a new year's resolution in 2019, uh, at the end of the year. Um, I wanted to have some kind of challenge for myself. You know, some people do these 365 photos a year. So every day you take a picture. And I've done it uh, a long time ago, but I failed after 264 <laughs> days or so. Uh, so I just, I thought it would be fun to have some kind of limitations for the next year. You know, little did I know that 2020 is going to change our lives. Um, but the idea was to, um, because I was also always taking pictures in color and black and white, I also felt the need to find, you know, one, one visual voice, you know, not have too many voices. And for me, color and black and white, they can work together sometimes, but more often they, they look too different to be in the same project. And, you know, I always admire photographers who just shoot, you know, one specific film or only black and white or only color or only high contrast. And yeah, I guess you could say it was a, I had a little identity crisis about my photography. <laughs> and when I look back, all my personal favorite photographs, they were all black and white. Uh, even though I have some photographs I personally also like in color. Um, so my idea was just shooting black and white for 2020 and maybe I can learn something new and uh, if not to tell other people about it, then maybe at least for myself. Um, and to be honest, now it's 2021, it's July. I'm still not sure what to think about it. <laughs> okay. I started filming uh, a video explaining it. I also made a book, which I'm now uh, trying to change a little bit because I'm not so happy with it uh, yet. Um, but the, the project title was basically, um, a year without color, um, because, you know, the pandemics, uh, came. So black and white was, uh, black and white was perfect for the mood of 2020. Did you regret that? Like you saw something and you, 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 you thought like, well, and then how hard were you on yourself? Because I uh guess that you don't have like uh monochrome that you still end up with dng files in color right so yeah, where are you tempted mm -hmm. to you know just use it like this looks so good in color i should rather uh, use it of course in the beginning that happened a lot um but i uh, created a preset in lightroom um and during the import uh um uh, import sessions. Uh, I would always make sure that the black and white preset is already applied before I even see the color. <laughs> uh, so I don't regret it. Um, I think it was important for me to stick to one specific thing because um, with all these, you know, social media and showing our works uh, all the time, there, there, you know, people don't really commit to something and I have the same 
problem because I'm also on YouTube. I uh, you know review some lenses from time to time, or a new camera comes out, or you know. Um, so in in my on YouTube, I always have different gear. So um, and I was also shooting color for some videos I had to do uh, last year. Uh, but for my personal work, I would only shoot black and white. And yeah, I wish I could give you an answer or on how I changed. But I think it's still a progress. And I think one year is not enough. One year, one year sounds like a long time. But you know, there are people out there. Um, uh, you know, like uh, Jesse Marlowe, I think, spent ten years for one of his books. Um, and 10 years is such a long time. Yeah. So one year is nothing again compared to that. So I think I have to keep shooting black and white. I also feel like I became better at it because I shot black and white uh, a year. Um, so yeah, watch out for my video, <laughs> <laughs> which will come out one day, but I don't know when. Okay. Why does image work in black and white for you? Do you have any rules? Or what have you found during this project? Yeah, I mean, I wrote down all these basic things that differentiate black and white with to color and, you know, black and white, you look at shapes, light, contrast. With color, you look more for Um, uh, color combinations, uh, the mood of color. And uh, I think you can use color uh, to enhance uh, a specific mood, uh, which is harder to do in black and white. In black and white, you you work more with subject uh, matter and and light. So uh, what I look for in a black and white photograph is um it's it's it sounds so cheesy but black and white helps you know uh capturing the soul of something you know i really hate saying that it it doesn't do it doesn't do it all the time but i think a good black and white photograph lets you forget about color or black and white you just look at the photo and you see Uh, a subject is seen and it just speaks to you. Um, uh, on the technical side, um, I think a successful black and white photo um, is rich in tones, like not only black and white, like, you know, just black and white, yeah. but also have all the gray tones in between. Um, what I found was black and white, uh, what I learned uh, last year is usually when I shoot color, Uh, I, I sometimes add a little vignette to emphasize the subject more uh, if it's in the center. But with black and white, I do the opposite now. I do like an inverted vignette, so I make the edges brighter. Okay. Um, if, for example, you have uh, trees in the background or a cityscape and a lot of like power lines in Tokyo, for example, uh, adding a vignette adds more contrast to these noisy elements. But if you, uh, I do this in camera on my GR, for example, uh, when I shoot black and white, uh, like one or two stops, um, 
I, I add more exposure just to the outside of the frame. And if you don't overdo it, it can make um, the subject stand out just a little bit more. And there are some tricks you can also do, but I don't do this really. Um, I did it, maybe I did it in some landscape photos. Is you can uh, add more contrast in your foreground subjects or in your subjects in general, and then reduce the contrast uh, where you don't want people to look too much too. Kind of like dodging and burning. Yeah, but just with contrast. Okay. Um, and you can, this is the kind of thing you can do with black and white. Um, you can also do this with color, of course. Um, so when you shoot black and white, then everyone knows, you know, if you have, you know, fog, like a, a misty day, then black and white always looks beautiful because everything melts into the background and subjects that are in front of you, they stand out so much, right? And yeah, you can do that with with enhancing you know, the image a little bit, um, lowering contrast or brightening parts up. So that is what I sometimes do, but most of the time I don't really need it. Um, so yeah, basically it has to um, speak to me. It has to evoke some emotions. I, should, I have to get it. <laughs> I think with color fo photographs, um, it's easy to, you know, have a woman in a red, red dress and you know, oh, the photographer was looking at that color. But with black and white, you need to be a little bit more precise um, to, to where the viewer, um, to, to where to direct the viewer's attention. So, yeah. Okay. That really makes me want to shoot black and white. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Yeah, that, that's my problem. That I always talk to photographer, and then I'm like, yeah, I have to do that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yesterday I was listening to um, uh, Andre uh, Wagner. You probably know him. Uh, he's a Leica shooter. He should only shoots film, and uh, Leica does these Leica conversations um, talks or these videos. And you know, whenever I see his photos, you know, I'm. I'm a big fan of his uh, photos. Very, you know, traditional style, black and white film, Trix. Um And yesterday I was listening to him talking about black and white and why black and white. And I was like, yeah, you're so right. <laughs> you know, I will always shoot black and white. And, uh, but then you listen to another color photographer. And I see and like Steve McCurry. Yeah. And I'm like, this makes much more sense to shoot in color. Mm, yeah. Uh, so yeah but uh, I talked to a friend of mine from uh, New Zealand he's a, a photographer who shoots a lot of black and white and he will be part of uh, my video when I talk about it and um, for example he doesn't even consider color as part of his artistic process he does take color photos but it's more to remember some something you know some object or something but he always has his cameras to black and white and you know, uh, I'm getting there, <laughs> but I'm I'm very distracted by color sometimes. Yeah. Do you have favorite style of street photography? Like, uh, I don't know, uh, if you like, mm -hmm. for example, you know, Daido Moriyama, or you more towards like Anne Cartier-Bresson. Um, so I have to 
say uh, Andre Wagner again because I mean his style is you know you could say it's very very Gary Winogrand uh, Winogrand like uh, I'm I'm also a 28 millimeter shooter so I personally really like uh, yeah um, the aesthetics of it um, so yeah definitely his work um, uh, at the beginning I was a huge uh, Matt Stewart fan um, I think my first street photograph was his pigeon photograph that I saw and then I realized oh this is street photography and then then I explored it more and more um, I'm I'm not a huge fan of Daido Moriyama. It's it's not a style that I personally really love. Uh, I can appreciate it. I I love I like his early film work, uh, not so much his digital work. Um, but you're you're asking about street photographers, right? Um, it's it's pretty much the same. Uh, I'm also a fan of um, uh, Aaron Berger or. Bird. Yeah, I think Aaron Berger is his name. He's also a New York photographer, but he also shoots 28, very similar to Andre, uh, Andre and Andre Wagner. Um, but that is the style that I feel comfortable working in. Um, but I actually want to look more outside of it and, and trying different focal lengths at the moment. And uh, because I live in the countryside right now, 28. Do you think uh, someone who is maybe thinking about starting with street photography should start with 28? I mean, I could talk about 28 all day. <laughs> you know what I actually like? What I really like about 28 is um, that, you know, everyone says when you shoot wide angle, you need to be close. And then you have this uh, this quote, uh, I think it was Robert Kappa. I don't remember. The, if you're not close enough, you know, you're not, if your photograph is not Good enough, you're not, enough, close enough. you're not close enough. And it makes sense if you're always like subject driven. But I found out last year during the pandemic, uh, shooting, you know, mostly 28. Um, or in general, when I look back at my old photos or other people's old photos, uh, the subject becomes more and more uninteresting because let's say you photograph, um, let's just take a Black Lives Matter protest because last year we had a lot of them and uh, let's say there's one photograph of a guy screaming and you know a very cool pose in in like 10 or 20 years we will see that but we we already know the his the story so oh okay yeah this is the people protesting but I think you will look more outside of the frame and this is what happens when you look at uh, like Gordon Park's photographs um, like right now, then yes, you see, you know, the message, the subject, but it's so interesting to see, you know, the signs in the background, what are steep, what are people holding in their hands? And, um, so what I like about 28 is, uh, that you have more in the frame, which makes it difficult for the photographer to have like, you know, organized framing, but at the same time, I think it's okay to have more in the frame because it will only add to uh, the the can you say re rewatch value okay. <laughs> of a photograph, you know, because later it will be more interesting coming back to these photos and seeing all these details in the background. So last year was was you know social distancing and and so on, you couldn't go up close anyways, or people 
really didn't want you to do that. Uh, so I was still shooting 28, but people were smaller in my frame. But that is also an interesting perspective. And um, uh, so, yeah, I, I just think 28 is more versatile than people think. It's not just for getting close. Um, okay. How someone decides what focal length works for him or her? Uh, or maybe zoom lens might be a good starting point. <laughs> what do you think about that? I think a, a prime lens in the beginning is always helpful because when you use a zoom in the beginning, you you have you just have more options, right? You you don't really warm up to one uh, focal length. You, if you have a 24 to 70, for example, you know, you have so many different focal lengths you can explore. Uh, it's much harder to find, uh, to really, uh, you know, see the, the benefits of a, of, a, of a focal length, like a 50 or 35. So I think for beginners, uh, I would recommend shooting on a prime um, uh, my first DSLR, uh, I, I, my first lens for my first DSLR was a 50, and that was on APS-C, so it's more like a 80, 80 millimeter maybe. Um, but that lens made me, you know, compose in, you know, 80 millimeter uh, field of view. Uh, and then you can uh, explore other focal lengths, you know, by by a 35 or by a 28, but. Um, at the beginning, I think you should find the focal length that can do most of what you want to do, then just stick to it. Um, like even right now, I don't know how long I'm doing photography, but probably since I'm 13, uh, I'm now 33, so 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it took me 20 years to find the focal length that I really, really can always come back to and uh, enjoy. And now I want to explore zoom lenses again, because I think I, I get it now, you know, I get you what 28 is. enough. Yeah, I'm mature enough <laughs> <laughs> to switch to a, a kit lens or zoom. Uh, so yeah, I, I want to explore zoom lenses now because I know how different focal lengths feel and the benefits of it. Uh, but for a beginner, uh, a 35 is probably the best choice when it comes to street photography. You can't can't go wrong with a 35. Okay. Or a GR, of course. <laughs> how do you keep educating yourself and improving your photography? Uh, when it comes to actively um, you know, teaching myself something new or improving my photography. I just try to keep shooting more, which sounds so basic, <laughs> but I think with, with, you know, things like doing, running a YouTube channel, um, I'm not taking as many pictures as I would like to. Most of the times I spent on the computer editing. So, just going out more and taking pictures um, does improve my photography. Every time I, for example, last year, I, uh, you probably remember, I um, did uh, this GR project uh, with yes. Rico. And um, I was taking photos like a full week in a different city, just with one camera. And just doing this project 
I became so much better at using, first of all, the camera because I was not using anything else in between and just repeating the same things and then adjusting, trying new things. So for me, I learn the most when I just keep doing something. And um, I will say, though, that I, I wish I went to more photo workshops. I never had the experience of getting like feedback from someone who's, you know, doing it much longer than me. And uh, even in university, I had a photo teacher. He never really gave me good criticism. He was always like, oh, nice, nice job. Good. <laughs> and then he's giving, you know, more feedback to the other students who, you know, maybe are more beginners. And so I, I regret, yeah, having not having spent any money to attend workshops. I actually was about to attend um, uh, Up Photographers workshop in Rome last year. And I already booked the flight, I booked uh, the workshop, and then they canceled it because of uh, COVID. Um, so yeah, I'm self-taught and uh, <laughs> I get my inspirations from, from everything. Um, but mostly I get better when I shoot more. Uh, there's this idea, especially in street photography, that the picture should tell a story, like you mentioned. And uh, you said for... Uh, or wrote for Rico EU, uh, and uh, I quote from the website, then the pictures swim in the endless stream of cool pictures that tell nothing about their makers, except that they want to be cool. So where is your story is always a question for images that photographers present to me. And one question mm. that is particularly important to me is, what does this story have to do with you? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Yeah, of course. Uh, I mean, it, it depends on who is looking at the photograph and if it's even if it's even important to to have a message or a story. But mainly, you 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 say to people, uh, your photograph should have a story because otherwise, other people won't get it. And why even take a photo if if it's not clear to the viewer what you're what you wanted to say. Okay. And so, um, uh, also last year, uh, a lot of photographers work changed uh, a lot and I found them to be much more personal, their work. Uh, I think, I, I don't know, but I feel like my work also did become a little bit more personal. And I think this is what is interesting to look at, um, because everyone can take, uh, a great, another great, we just shouldn't use great so loosely, but everyone can take a decent photograph, a nicely composed photograph. Everyone can capture the right moment, you know, just take photos 12 frames per second or something and you <laughs> okay. will find the good moment. So there's skill in that, but uh, a strong photograph for me has also some personality in it and ideally someone else should experience that through the photograph. So uh, I'm not against like photographs, not, uh, I don't say that photographs have to have a story, but they have to have, um, yeah, something personal in it from the photographer. If it's mainly uh, a photograph that uh, was shot for like documentary purposes, then it should be very. It should be clear what the purpose of the photograph is, um, but 
even if you shoot uh, a wedding, you might, you know, do compositions that you saw other photographers do. But still, there's always a little bit of your vision in it. So, um, yeah, that, that's what I like seeing. If if I see a photograph and I get nothing from it, um, then I feel like the photographer didn't really put themselves in it. So you're talking uh, about style yeah. of photographer. How does someone develop style? I don't have a step-by-step uh, <laughs> instruction. I can only tell you what I experienced uh, witnessing other photographers who developed their own style. Um, I think my, my friend uh, Ulysses, shout out, you, you, had, you had him uh, on your podcast. Um, when we met, for example, his photos were very much, you know, street photography, Gary Winogrand style. And now his work has so much changed in a good way. I really think his uh, aesthetic is becoming very like him. And I think this is um, so good to see. And uh, I think the, the key point is probably to just stick um, with your gut. And, you know, who can say that Like, who is going to determine what your style is? I think other people will say that to you. Like, I cannot really describe my style. I can describe what I'm looking for, but other people will interpret my uh, photographs differently. And um, so if you're looking for your own style, maybe it's good to ask other people, you know, do you see something? Like, how do you feel about my photographs? And... um, because it's hard to, to see your own style. You might not realize that you are um, mimicking another uh, photographer's style, which is very common and uh, not a bad uh, thing to do. And you can add your own uh, uh, flavor to it. But uh, it's, it's important to have a style if you know you want to be recognized as uh, for a specific vision, uh, look. Uh, if you want to, you know, become an amazing photographer who is known for one style, or you want to become a commercial photographer who is, who ultimately you want to stand out, right? And if you want to sell your photographs, otherwise there's no point of you um, doing it. Uh, maybe we have AI technology in the future <laughs> who can shoot in anyone's style, and then we have to find a new way. Uh, so. Yeah, in my experience, you develop a style by just continue uh, putting out the work, uh, trying new things, because then you find out what is not your style. Um, You know, like shooting black and white or color, this can be part of your style. And then maybe you you experiment with low contrast, high contrast, or you shoot more aggressively or more clean. Um, At the end of the day, once you reach a point where you're comfortable taking pictures and you don't think too much about it, I think that's the time when other people also recognize the style. But if you're constantly like reinventing yourself, then um, it's hard to say if you have, everyone has a style, even if it's not apparent. But what you put out there might be um, just a phase of you know something you're experimenting. So it's not easy, but just 
listen to your gut and <laughs> whatever feels right whatever is most comfortable to you like um let's take uh, some photographers for example um here tatsu uh, suzuki uh, in japan um most people know him as this you know very in your face black and white high contrast photographer but he didn't start off that way you know he took i think he actually took photos of models and um, clean photos and then he wanted to have more emotion and then you know his style developed and now he can't shoot anything else because he found his style so whatever makes you feel most comfortable shooting um that is your style <laughs> accept it <laughs> <laughs> okay and uh how do you stand out uh in this uh, as you said like a flood of cool pictures for example in this in this social media game right and you also recently talked about <laughs> the instagram and how it influences and uh, how it influences photographers but how also they treat your images and how you want them to be treated with right mm. so so what would be your advice for people who would like to stand out on you know social media <laughs> it's a trap people it's a trap <laughs> <laughs> no it really is because so it's a it's how how do you say it's a double edged sword so on the one side You absolutely need to be on social media to be seen nowadays. It's just how it is, unfortunately, because not all social media uh, platforms, um, you know, showcase your work in the best way. But to be to to get discovered by other people, there's really nothing you can do. Uh, you can avoid social media, of course, and work on your projects. And maybe after 20 years, you publish a book and then maybe the project will be interesting enough that people starting to recognize you. But uh, it's 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 very, I have personal, I have also a lot of problems with Instagram, but mostly in recent times, uh, um because I, i i realized for myself that my photographs um not too much but they were definitely affected by just the fact that i have to present my work this small you know and photos that have a strong subject good contrast they work great on instagram but um um for example uh i think yesterday or two days ago uh sean sean tucker he posted a photo on his instagram i really liked this photo uh it was a black and white uh vertical orientation photograph of a city scene or town scene and a little boy jumping and normally people would shoot a close-up of the action but he shot the whole scene and because it's also shot in like portrait orientation it's even smaller But I know that this photo printed like this big or even looking at on a big screen will look so good and but it just doesn't work well on Instagram and that's just a shame. <laughs> so I think the danger of Instagram is that you take photos that work on Instagram based on how people look at your photos, um, which is something you have to do if you're after you know, the likes, the followers, um, 
And after the video I did, I got some comments of people saying, you know, what can I do? There's no other way. I just have to play the game. Otherwise, no one will see my photos. And that's kind of true. But uh, and we can still do that. I don't think you just have to be mindful about it. You, you can't just start your Instagram account and don't reflect on what you're doing on this on the social media platform because it will it is designed to change you in the first place so we all know that social media is designed to manipulate you know your behavior uh, so that's already you know clear uh, but I think we forget how it changes how we do our creative work as well um, for some people it is a blessing <laughs> some people they got really famous and you know, uh, we're able to sell photo books and do galleries, uh, uh, um, exhibitions because they become famous through Instagram. And um, I think it's so it has, you know, good sides and, and bad sides. But for my own photography, I because I can afford it not to post regularly, uh, uh, I actually don't care too much about posting on Instagram anymore. Um, I'm still not sure if I should delete all my posts because the only thing I use is the story feature okay. to quickly, you know, give some updates and share some little clips. And uh, we recently heard uh, the new direction Instagram is going for. So photographers are not the heart uh of Instagram, uh, the, the main uh, target uh, audience. Um, that's yeah, that's how it is. Um, so I'm, I'm pro having your own website. But I also know that having your own website doesn't mean that people will see your work. Um, I encourage people to try YouTube. That helped me a lot. Uh, YouTube was never for me never planned. I just did it to see how it goes. And then uh, all my followers on Instagram, they come from YouTube. No question about it. So uh, if you are after like followers and likes, or if you're just after see, uh, showing your photos to other people, YouTube is actually maybe even better than Instagram, I would say. Okay. Because you can directly target people through, um, through searchable tags or titles. And you, you can include your work uh, in, you know, in a, in a gear review <laughs> and use your work as show to showcase, you know, how how the camera takes photos, what kind of photos. So you can show your work uh, on YouTube. Um, and I do that as well. And, uh, but there are other downsides, you know, on YouTube. If you do that for a long time, you become a YouTube photographer. <laughs> and then people judge you on your the photos you show during a YouTube video, which if you took these photos for the video are probably not your best photographs. Um, so if 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 your work is the most important thing, then stay off of social media. But if you want to, you know, pursue a life of photography maybe even make a living as a photographer there is there is no way around being on social media even if you do client work locally you can 
totally make a living just having a website or a physical portfolio and building a customer uh, base or client base in your town. But uh, it, it would be pretty stupid to not have at least a website or be on some social media page uh, if you want to be discovered. Yeah. It just is how this is how it is. So, so uh, with with the website and uh, you know building your portfolio on your website, do you have any tips on how to present a portfolio? Should you should you have like a dedicated you know style you present, or should you present just your best shots, or show some range of styles you can do? So on your website. Uh, Typically, if it's a portfolio website, you only want to show um, the absolute best photographs that describe the type of work you're doing and want to do also in the future. Because, of course, future clients, they will hire you for what they saw uh, you're doing. And if you um, you know, post different work uh, that you don't want to do, then you get hired for that type of work, of course. Um, is it? If it's for a street photographer, then yeah, just show your best work. I mean, you can, in the beginning, I had like city pages. So I would just show photos of different cities uh, because I was traveling a lot. But um, honestly, don't look at my website <laughs> as a good example because I used to have a very professional uh, video production oriented, but also photography, including Uh, website with you know all my references you know all the logos of my clients uh, really professional and a showreel uh, but nowadays because I don't need to do this work anymore uh, because I'm mostly doing my own stuff on YouTube or for, for Rico sometimes uh, my website is more like a landing page and I have some photos on it but honestly I, I think I need to Uh, work on my portfolio and put out at least a small portfolio on my website. But right now it's it's too many photos. Um, so I would say limit your photos to for the front page. I would not not post more than 10 maybe, hmm. and that should be enough. And then if you have projects, yeah, you can do project pages. But because you uh, said in one of the podcasts about that's long time ago that you treat your Instagram as a portfolio. So that has changed. <laughs> I, I don't even remember saying that. That's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I said it in the, in the context of, uh, or maybe uh, of uh, when you get approached on the street, then you can always show your Instagram. Okay. And people get what you're about immediately. So, uh, so in that case, it is kind of important to look at the first six photos of your Instagram page because that is what people see. Um, but it, I I saw Instagram more like a like a uh, like a diary or something that show shows your your um, progress because um, when you can still go back to my uh, first or not first photographs but very early street photography work, which looks different than my work now. And I like to leave it there just to see, oh, th this is how I changed. Um, but as a portfolio, it's a shame that it's so small, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I would say, your I think your photograph deserves 
uh, your photographs deserve a proper website and maybe use Instagram to um, show more new stuff. But there's, you can also, you know, repost your, your classics, your, your, your best offs. Some people do that. And then your, your Instagram always looks like a portfolio. Mm. And it does work very well for some people. In my case, <laughs> I would be reposting like, um, in my case, I would be reposting like two photographs all over again. So that wouldn't really work. <laughs> Uh, I wanted to ask you, uh, you are a full-time freelancer since 2012, right? Yeah. I believe photography is a big part of that. But what else you also do or did to get to this point? Mm. Okay, finally, we are coming to my Genesis story. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Yeah, I, I, I... as I said, I wanted to become a photojournalist, um, but I was um, uh, so I was studying uh, communications uh, designs or graphic design, and I had a um, uh, I applied for that uh, with a photography portfolio. But I really became interested in like documentary photography because one of my teachers at that time uh, was, and I think he still is, a photojournalist, and. He was always shooting very wide, and for me this was a new world. And then uh, I watched the the, the film uh, Wall Photographer uh, with James Nachtway, and that inspired me so much. Uh, I shot wide-angled, and um, I started doing my own uh, reportage uh, projects. Um, but as a career choice. I wasn't sure if this is the right path, but I, I thought I just have to try it out. I wasn't really uh, looking forward to become like a conflict photographer. I knew that this is not my thing, but I wanted to capture stories and document uh, things uh, in the world. So and my photographer teacher at that time, he encouraged me. He said, um, if you really want to do it, then I can definitely recommend it. Like I've been freelancing my whole life and it's the best thing I ever did. And he was really selling it to me, uh, but not only to me, but also to uh, other students. Um, and for for us students, it was always like, you either go to an advertising agency or you become freelan- a freelancer. And I actually got offered an uh, internship from a very big uh, advertising agency. Um, uh, but I knew advertising, the advertise, uh, advertising world is not for me. I really don't like doing uh, stuff that is just, how can I say it politely, very uh, unimportant to the world. <laughs> Okay. You know, who cares about a, sh- a shampoo a brand or, you know, I don't want to be a designer for things that, you know, McDonald's or something. And this is this would have been my future if, if I accepted that. Uh, so I was like, OK, let's just become a photojournalist. I had no prior experience, so that was stupid. But my uh, photographer teacher, he actually helped me uh, getting signed by a um uh, photo agency, um, which is called uh, Visum uh, Visum Images or Visum Photo, and it used to be the magnum of Germany. <laughs> it was a very big agency, very renowned, renowned um, 
and he was part of it. But when I entered the agency uh, to apply for it and show them my work, uh, it was only like three guys in a small room. Uh, you know, they only had one small room as an office and they used to be the agency for photojournalism. And they, they, you know, accepted me. I was part of their system now. And the first thing I should have done and also tried is to just go out and um, capture all these, you know, events going on in my city. Uh, you know, uh, you know, I don't know. So, so like a horse race or something like that for for for, for magazines or uh, newspapers. But even at that time, there were already things like. Uh, Oh, what's it called? You know, all these uh, photo uh, um, subscription sites. Um, like stock images? Stock images, yeah. Uh, so I never sold a single image. And even though I uploaded my photos right away after the event, but I was just 24 years old. I don't, I didn't have a car at that time. So I was always the last to upload my photos. <laughs> okay. <laughs> And all the other photojournalists, you know, they had backpacks with, you know, transmitters and stuff to, to you know, shoot the photo and then go straight to the uh, agency or newspaper. So how can I compete with that, you know? And I had my little Pentax camera because I couldn't afford a Canon. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so that was, you know, not doing it for me. And then I thought maybe I should find interesting stories and sell it to uh, magazines. And uh, I was so close to, um, there's a magazine called Geo in Germany. I think it's part of National Geographic, but a, a sub uh, company. And I was in contact with them, you know, and I, I worked on a project. Uh, and they said, yeah, um, you know, if you're, if you're done, then you can present it to us. And I was like, oh, I'm so excited. And then uh, it was just unrealistic. And the thing is also that, uh, in order to become a successful photojournalist photo, uh, photo nowadays, you have to have a lot of money and then you have to finance your own trips and projects. You have to finish your projects. Ideally, you also write uh, articles about your project. And then as a package, you sell it to uh, a magazine or a newspaper or you do an exhibition. But I don't. I didn't have any money. I was also like part-time working in a coffee shop. Such a cliche after graduating as a graphic designer to work in a coffee shop. Uh, so yeah, it just didn't work out. Um, but uh, not to go to more into detail. But um, so that was my first steps into freelancing. Um, my photographer teacher was still like helping me out, you know, about how to get a press. Uh, pass and stuff and insurance and uh, but I I realized that the money is more in video production okay. and actually my photographer teacher uh, asked me to assist him uh, taking like headshots corporate headshots and then he wanted to shoot or he had to shoot interviews uh, video and he knew that I was a little bit um, I was I was uh, doing some video work as well so he asked me to assist and help him doing these interviews. Um, and then I realized, oh, I'm much better at <laughs> doing these corporate video uh, jobs than going out and become the next James Nachtway without any 
money. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, this is how I went into video production and um, started out just by myself, had some other friends freelancing with me together. Um, my friend uh, Bello, he uh, asked me to join his company. Uh, he he um, started a little production company. Uh, I started a production company with my father. This also didn't work well. Then I went back to freelance, um, and then YouTube happened. And I don't need to need to do that shit anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I actually want to go back to doing more freelance uh, work because uh, it's not. I don't know how sustainable it is to just be on YouTube um, because. Uh, I don't trust the the U U.S. dollar, and that is my main income. <laughs> <laughs> I, I need to f uh, look for pl Plan B. Okay, so as a freelancer, what are your income streams? I mean, um, you don't have to tell me like the exact numbers, but maybe for people <laughs> who are maybe thinking mm -hmm. to make the same jump as you did into freelancing and especially photography. How big of a part is, for example, YouTube ad revenue, memberships, prints, workshops? Yeah. So number one advice, uh, marry someone who has a stable in job. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, this seriously is an uh, important part. Um, but Is it what you uh, did? Yeah, this is, uh, yeah, this is what I did um and it definitely helped um but <laughs> so yeah as as a freelancer it's it's always good to have um multiple uh, income streams um i always knew that but uh i had no idea you know how do you get pa uh, passive income or um and i really want to make it clear here for anyone wondering because uh, i think i don't talk about it uh, enough uh, I'm definitely not living an above average life because I'm on YouTube. Uh, I I can tell you I I just make a living. <laughs> you know I I also have debt as anyone else, especially because I got a mortgage for this house um, and I have a child now. Uh, but for me, it's more important for me to. You know, if I can meet my my basic needs, then that is my goal. Like, I don't need to become rich. You know, I don't I don't want to become. I, I don't even want to like have influence because of my status or something. It's, it's something that for YouTube, for example, just happens if you grow. But if I can just do what I want and pay for my basic needs, then that is that was my goal and. You know, it's it's. If you ask me next three or four years ago, I would still be like, oh, I, I don't think I can ever get to that point. And I I know I'm I'm a, I'm a realist. Uh, I know that even though I'm doing okay right now, it can all you know go away in a few months. Uh, I actually don't even have enough savings to survive more than uh, three months, to be honest. Um, but this is how, just how I live. <laughs> It's it's stupid, but at the same time, it's also you know the way to do it, <laughs> because you, when you, if you always think about, you know, I need something to fall back on, uh, I need to plan B, I need to have this job first, and then work on my uh, my other uh, uh, you know my my main uh, work, 
uh, or my art, my art, then it will maybe someday in your 50s or 60s work out. But then you 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 know you you're retired anyways. You can afford it. And all my friends from university who who also played with the idea to become freelance, um, they not a lot of them went freelance. Most of them accepted whatever offer they got from an agency. Then they they were just hired and they're still in the agency or another agency. But they are not really like fulfilled or happy where they are, like the ones that I talked to at least. Because yeah, it makes you good money, but you're always doing, you know, work that, especially if you're not like the main designer of, of a team or if you're just doing like, repetitive work uh, because you have the skills but it's not really a lot of yourself in it it's i think it's hard to have a passion for something that you do for others um, that's why companies probably invest so much in team building and getting workers to be motivated but for me i, I just could never imagine sitting all day in an office and i used to do this because i was sometimes hired as a uh, freelancer for like a month in the in the office so I had to come every day like a regular uh, uh, worker so I know how it feels like and I was always so happy to leave after that <laughs> all the drama uh, between other co-workers and you know all these stupid things <laughs> um, so uh, yeah I, I mean I had really rough times like not being able to like buy uh, food for a week like just eating rice and uh, you know whatever i can uh, scrap together um but at the end this is the, this was the only way for me and it just happened to work out on youtube um let, but let me go back to your original question about the what are the types of incomes uh, streams so I, I'm not getting paid from clients anymore because I don't do any work outside of my channel. Or if uh, if you're following what Rico is doing, I sometimes do videos for them as well. If they ask you to do something like uh, a video production or some yeah something that involves a lot of work, they better pay you. Otherwise, they are taking advantage of you. So Rico obviously pays me for for my labor and you know doing videos for them. Um, yeah, I get a little bit of, uh, I, yeah, I work sometimes for Rico, so they pay me sometimes. No, they always pay me if they hire me, but, <laughs> uh, it's not like regular stable income. Um, and, uh, then of course YouTube, um, uh, you have re YouTube like at, at, uh, advertising money, like AdSense, uh, and that pays for, for my rent, uh, which is nice once you reach, you know, that level that you know your videos you already produced create you know enough income so that you can pay your rent and all the things you need to pay uh, um, like electricity and stuff uh, then everything else you can save or you know use for to invest in yourself again so YouTube actually pays enough so that I can pay my rent but not much more than that and then I also have some uh, Amazon affiliate links under my videos. But to be honest, 
uh, I can tell you I make maybe 100 euro a month from that. I used to make like 300 or 400 a month from my Amazon links, but I think I'm not really doing enough to, to push these links. Uh, but uh, I don't want to do always like product reviews. Um, so that's that. I also sometimes do, um, people also sometimes ask me for like advice. Uh, so I um, offer like uh, Skype or Zoom sessions, cons- like consulting sessions, uh, portfolio feedback, or someone, you know, who wants to make a book, they want to maybe some feedback or uh, so that happens sometimes. I sell some prints, uh, not a lot, um, but these are like small things that happen on the side. And yeah, but to be honest, it's mostly. Oh, I also sell presets. <laughs> yeah, but they, they're not. You know, presets are a big business. Like there's no no one that so many photographers push their presets um, because. It is crazy how many people buy presets. When I made my presets, I made them because I wanted to create the look of my GR on my Fuji camera. And I knew there was no no preset out there that does it. Uh, I came close to it, to the look I want, but it's not the same as the original look I was going for. Uh, But anyways, the the presets, when I put them out, like... money came like crazy (laughs) (laughs) it's really it's people underestimate how much money people make with presets like whenever you see a big youtuber plugging the presets you know they're making some serious cash after this for a few months (laughs) okay Uh, or they have been previously so maybe i should do more presets but uh that is something that is still like I don't know how long ago, two years ago, maybe I post uh, published them. Uh, I can't say how much, but maybe like 300, 400 euro or so in a month. And but uh, it used to be, you know, more and more. But uh, yeah, if you ever wonder why people sell presets, it's because people buy them. You know. Okay. So yeah, a lot of different uh, things, but um, yeah. At the moment, it's mostly what I get from YouTube and these little consulting sessions and uh, uh, the jobs I do for for Rico and sponsorships. I totally forgot sponsorships, but I haven't been doing them for a long time. If I would do a sponsor, I don't know, you did probably also Skillshare? Did you do Skillshare? No, no, I'm not that skilled to do Skillshare. Okay, so Squarespace also approached me, but I just can't do Squarespace. I can't. Put my viewers through with your beautiful school. website. Yeah, <laughs> make your next move with Squarespace. Ah, <laughs> oh, uh, Squarespace, man! I used to uh, own Squarespace websites, but not anymore. So I'm not the right guy to to make uh, advertising for them. But sponsorships are, are a big deal, and if you want to make money on YouTube, you need to at some point you need to do uh, have sponsors. Um, or you are Mr. Beast or someone you know who has million views. So sorry. I know you also had Patreon, but recently switched to oh, yeah, yeah, memberships, yeah. right? Uh, so, what is um, what are the benefits of each platform, and why did you make mm. the switch? Is it just easier to uh, yeah, organize yeah. everything on one platform? 
Definitely. Um, I totally forgot about that. Yeah, but memberships is... Um, uh, so for everyone who doesn't know this on YouTube, um, some channels, they offer like um, uh, the viewer to become a member. So you can subscribe to a channel, but you can also become a member. And then you can post uh, exclusive content just for these uh, members. And you can set how much uh, you want to charge for this membership. And I think for me, I, I charge like four ninety nine. Um, and the reason I did that is because on Patreon in the beginning, I think Patreon Patreon is great for like small creators or small artists um, that have a small and passionate core fan group that want to support you because they know you don't have a lot of resources to grow. And at the beginning, I had a lot of supporters and it was great and uh, very thankful for that, of course. But the issue is the more and more um, my channel grew, the the you know the better videos I wanted to do, the more I spent time to to um, to work on uh, multiple videos at the same time and uh, become a little bit more professional about it. I had less and less time to offer my patrons all these perks that I promised them. Okay. And you know then from time from time to time uh, patrons would you know drop off, uh, go somewhere else, uh, leave, which is totally fine. Uh, but it's just, you know, going to Patreon, you have to create a, an account, you have to lo be logged in or log in to it to see what some, someone is writing to you. Um, but because they are like paying supporters, you want to focus your attention to them first before you go to the public comments on YouTube, for example. And I just couldn't really do that. And I didn't want them to, um, I didn't want to charge money for some things that I promised and I cannot fulfill. So I decided to go and do it on YouTube because I'm already on, already on YouTube every day checking what's going on. Um, and when I, whenever I uploaded like Patreon content, I uploaded it uh, on my YouTube channel, unlisted and then posted it on Patreon, which is, you know, just a step that is takes more time. Uh, so now on, on YouTube, I can just upload a video uh, make it for members only and then write a little community post about it and then all my members can see it and and I, I actually do at least one video every month uh, for my members so I can actually fulfill my promises <laughs> and it's it's a lot of fun I really you know the thing is the more you grow on, on something like a YouTube channel the higher the expectations are from you and it's it's harder to experiment. Like you do one thing wrong and suddenly everyone is like, oh, what's going on with this channel? I'm leaving. <laughs> so in the, in the beginning of a YouTube channel, this is so great if you if you have like 10,000 followers on that range, you still can experiment and see what, uh, you can try things out. But for me right now, it's, it's, it's just a little harder. So yeah. I have to do more things that work but at the same time, I want to be me. But for my members, you know, I couldn't care less how I, I'm dressed, you know, I, I, because it's not public. It's just for my 150 or how many members I have. I saw your update from the forest. Oh, are you a member? Yeah, so I bought it so, oh, okay. so I, I can uh, watch the um, streams and, you know, to find the information. Nice, for nice. Me. 
for the yeah, interview. Thanks, uh, yeah, I, yeah, also for outtakes. Um, uh, sometimes I edit a video and it's over one hour long and I'm like, ah, this is too long. And then I have to cut stuff out, but it always hurts to cut stuff out because I know that my, my, my core fan group, they would appreciate seeing that, but I have to, you know, be more considerate because if YouTube is my business now, I can't just, you know, risk having suddenly the, the, you know, I always have to look out for the channel's uh, growth and uh, YouTube does some things that I don't really like, but I have to do, um, for example, a video that is coming out today after this uh, talk um, is just a behind the scenes vlog of my friends and I having fun, but okay. who cares about it if you don't know me, right? So I titled it, you know, why I love the Fujifilm X-E4 for video. Okay. <laughs> but it is just a big sample video or showcase of how this camera does vlogging. So, uh, yeah, I have to sometimes do that to, to, to reach new people. And that's just how it is. So for my members, you know, I do whatever I want. Um, and that's so much fun. So, yeah. Uh, talking about your YouTube channel, um, there is a rumor floating around, which I would like to address first. <laughs> I have rumors around me. <laughs> and then it is, are you going to change the name of the channel to Samuel's Farm Life? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, probably not, but it is very tempting to open a new channel just to, you know, explore uh, farm life. Um, I'm not sure. And I can't really answer that question because I don't really know what, how my, the future of my channel is going to look like. Um, because of my uh, son now being born, um, I'm not able to do as many videos. I cannot travel right now. And I know the stuff that works well on my channel, uh, the longer format videos uh, where I interview other photographers. I want to go back to that, but I need to make time for it. I need to travel for it. So, hmm. um, yeah. I actually, uh, after seeing your Eric Kim uh, episode, uh, that was actually very uh, fun hearing him talk. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I, I always wanted to know like what's going on with this guy because he was a huge inspiration for uh, starting my channel. Uh, I always watched his like GoPro vlogs, meeting other street talks. Uh, so a lot of what I do is actually uh, kind of copying what he did, uh, maybe with with better quality now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but what I really uh, uh, loved about him is that um, he was never like chasing, um, you know, views or stuff. He was always like sharing random stuff, and that's what I did with my potato vlogs that I do on my channel or did. Um, is sharing this, you know, what's happening around me, like meeting other people. And and I think this is something for someone who wants to grow on YouTube or some platform. It always comes down to you as as an individual, you as, as a character. Um, the, the photographers I follow, they are interesting characters and, and they have other passions outside of photography. And I want to do a video about it someday, but I think 
I can't always just talk about photography, you know, I have to sometimes show, look, I, I have a small chicken farm now and, yeah. you know, uh, this is my boring village uh, where I live, but, uh, you know, life changes and I want to share this somehow, but uh, maybe the name Street Life is not fitting that much anymore. <laughs> I don't know if you noticed, but I removed the L in between. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was actually checking and then uh, <laughs> you did that on, on purpose. You wanted to make it more searchable yeah. or? No, just because people started referring to my channel as Samuel Street Life anyways. Uh, so the L was just because of my Japanese name. Um, but it's yeah. shorter is better. Okay. Usually. So you feel like the YouTube algorithm influences what you create. Unfortunately, like you it also does. do a lot of gear reviews, right? Which uh, yeah. I, I don't expect them all to be just you know because you love all, all the cameras. Or I mean, there are like channels who do only like gear reviews, right? Which yeah. might be a way to go if you want to, you know break out on, on YouTube. Yeah. Yeah, I generally only review uh, things that I personally already use or want to use and want to see if it can help me. Okay. So when I review like products or camera gear that was sent to me, um, then I think beforehand if I can use this for myself, like, um, but I don't, I'm not really included a lot uh, uh, when a camera comes out I'm not really on the on the list of people okay. <laughs> the company reach out to I mean Fujifilm did the, something with the XC4 with me last year or was it this year well, I don't remember uh, I think it was this year uh, that was the first time I was like included in, in the brand new camera release and, uh, but I accepted it because I was actually looking to buy um, a small camera for my videos and I felt this camera can become my new YouTube video camera and it is it has become my main the main camera I use now so that's as long as I can I review stuff that I personally am interested in and want to know more about then I will continue doing that but I will probably not become a review channel I, I uh, there's too much work <laughs> okay yeah. And is there something like a best camera for street photography? Is there something like a best camera for street, for street photography? photography? If you should pick one camera. Why are you asking me? <laughs> because it will be a good title. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Good, good clickbait title. <laughs> Samuel Street Life's uh, opinion on best street photography camera. Revealing uh, what a surprise what a surprising street photography camera, you know, something mm, like that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So why is so Ricoh GR best street photography camera? Should be the question. Well, say again. Uh, so, so maybe rather why is Ricoh GR3 the best street nah, photography camera should be the question. How, right? how many times do I have to repeat myself? <laughs> <laughs> if I haven't sold the GR3 to you yet, then I did. The, well, actually, I bought it after I watched your video with uh, Sean Tucker and, and you in, in London. Ah, okay. So I thought, like, I really need this. 
<laughs> you definitely do. Yeah. Everyone needs a GR. <laughs> um, yeah. So in my opinion, it really is the best street photography camera. Uh, and I'm not saying this because... Um, uh, you are because paid. I, huh? Because you are yeah, paid. No, no, no. I'm not... <laughs> Let's make this clear. I'm not being paid to use this camera. Uh, I started street photography with the GR1, which was also provided to me by Rico. But I have been um, I've been a Rico ambassador even before that. So with my Pentax TSLR time. So I did work for them until the GR came out. And then they were like, here, what, do you want to try this? Do you want to become an ambassador with this camera? And I was like... Actually, uh, I wanted to try out one for a long time, and then it became my favorite camera. Uh, I traveled all my 20s. I traveled with my GR, uh, captured some things I can never show in daylight. I always say, I always say, it's hard to replace. Uh, it's easy to replace, you know, an XT2 or X Pro so and so or um, Canon so and so. But it's hard to replace, you know, a small compact camera because any other small compact camera for photography, uh, from what I've seen and testing, uh, cannot come close to the GR. Where is the balance between having too much of gear uh, uh, in, in, on one hand and on the other hand, just one camera, one lens? Like, do you keep all the gear you use? I mean, for your work, for your personal work, not for your like YouTube. I expect you have a more gear for like lighting, lighting, and you know such. Mm. So, because I when I started, I always I never had enough money to buy everything I felt I needed. So I always had to buy what I what was really necessary, like. First, you know, I got a camera that shoots video, but I didn't have the most versatile lens. It had no autofocus. I had no microphone. So next I had to buy microphones. So my gear actually slowly uh, accumulated and um, I only have like one, you know, one LED light that I use sometimes. Uh, I could probably afford another one, but uh, I try to always have gear that I actually use. Um, it's hard sometimes to find a good balance. Like, um, uh, you know, I, 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 how, what, what, I, <laughs> what do I want to say? Uh, so basically all the cameras I have at the moment, they are being used, but if I don't use a camera like for three or four weeks, um, I feel the urge to sell it okay. because if I don't use a camera, I always feel bad about it. So that's why I I have no issues like switching out my main camera. Um, like, yeah, the GR is my main like street camera, but, you know, I used to own a 5D uh, that I used for, you know, more professional work. Then I felt I don't need it anymore, so I sold it. Um, I, I, you know, I owned the Leica M262, the Leica SL, but I don't get too attached to my gear, like, the moment I feel like, oh, it's not for me, then I rather sell it than keep it because I feel like I, no, if I don't like it, it has to go. <laughs> and 
so everything I own at the moment, uh, I still use. Um, I actually am still thinking about changing all my gear. I'm actually thinking of ditching my Fuji gear for Canon gear, but it never ends. You know, you, I think about gear, but for my personal work, um, I'm, I, I pretty much know what I want to use. That is this camera and what I want to use above that is at the moment I'm experimenting, let's say. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And you talked about uh, being a Ricoh GR ambassador. Uh, can you tell me more about it? How how does it work? Do you have any restrictions? Like, are you mm. free to say what you want in the reviews? For example, like uh, if you don't like it, or yeah, yeah. if uh, you can use other uh, brands on your channel and stuff. Yeah. So uh, before I talk about the situation for me, because I think it's different from other ambassadors because traditionally um let's say you have an olympus uh, ambassador or a sony or leica um the, the the brand often wants the photographer to only use uh, their gear yeah um but in the in the case of rico um i mean they also have pentax pentax and rico is one company um i don't care about pentax anymore but they make this camera as this is a you know a pocket camera for like documenting your life or doing snapshots it's a snapshot camera they cannot expect me to only use this as a photographer okay <laughs> so they know this is a this is a you know a camera for a photographer who already has cameras and they want something small so they don't they don't have to bring their heavy cameras so from from the beginning i knew it's not a problem that i use different gear And actually, I uh, no, I cannot take credit for it. Uh, shout out to to Wolfgang Baus from Germany. He's the product manager from Rico Germany. And uh, to give you a little backstory, uh, so when the GS3 was announced, uh, so every country has to have their own ambassadors, uh, or usually a brand wants to have their local ambassadors, so that people like in Germany. They come in contact to, to me or Oliver Krumis is another GR ambassador. Um, so they always look for people that represent uh, their camera. And then when the GS3 was announced, um, of course, because I was already an ambassador here in Germany, uh, Wolfgang, the Rico uh, product manager in Germany, suggested me to Japan, where you know Japan is where Rico comes from. And then... I, I don't know what they said, but something like, oh, everyone, but not this guy. <laughs> <laughs> and you know why? Because I, at that time, I was still using my X100F, uh, which is the camera I used uh, to build my channel. Um, but I only had this camera because my GR broke um, and I needed a new street camera. And Rico didn't bring out any new camera. So I was like, I guess I buy a different camera then. But then um, I guess they realized that there, there, there aren't any other options or better options. So they still gave me uh, the camera. Uh, but at the end, um, I think our uh, pitch was that, isn't it better that someone uh, um, is you know, not a brand Whore, I don't want to say whore. I don't know if I can say that. Like a, 
uh, S L U T to the brand, you know, <laughs> no, it's, yeah. Okay. You know what I mean? It's, uh, if you see a brand ambassador and all that talk is, let's say Fuji, do you, do you think they are always talking the, the real honest uh, thoughts? Maybe, maybe not. Right. Because you don't, you never see them talking about other gear or maybe you don't even hear them talking negatively about the brand. And I always wanted to keep uh, my authenticity and I felt like I, I at, uh, until this uh, GR3 came out, I think people valued my opinion because I was not really uh, too much uh, kissing <laughs> other brands' uh, ass. Uh, so I didn't want to do this with the GR either. And I told Rico, you know, let's make this a, a strong point, like, uh, you know, a benefit of um, me using other cameras, showing that this is not, you know, the only camera. This is, you know, my pocket camera. And uh, and this also the, the first video I did, the first impression, I pointed out like a bug that I found, like snap focus. It didn't really work in the first version of the firmware. And I was, you know, annoyed by that. I said that. And then Rico Japan didn't even know that. Uh, until they saw my video and then they fixed it and then they said you know it's actually good that i talk honestly about the camera so they are super cool and uh i guess that was the question <laughs> yeah and the, you said they are not paying you to do that so i guess they providing yeah. the gear yeah okay uh, let, maybe i don't know this might be interesting for your viewers but um so they don't pay me to be an ambassador, but they no other camera brand pays a photographer to be an ambassador. Maybe if it's, I don't know. Steve McCurry. Steve McCurry, then yeah, Leica pays maybe Steve McCurry to show up in a Leica SL ad. Who knows? We never see him working with the SL, but suddenly he has an SL. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, but camera companies... Um, uh, so before like Instagram or social media, they always had photographers on their website, professional photographers um, that were doing real professional work with the cameras they want to sell or the brand um, as ambassadors. And this is how it always was. And no one cared about people who have large followings. And of course, they were all, always looking for that as well. But it was enough to have a professional photographer that has a good reputation on, on the website listed as a photographer. Um, I guess most people want to become an ambassador because they think it gives them some status, some, you know, some status, some, some fame. Or, uh, but uh, I'm, I'm actually going to do a video about this topic because uh, so many people ask me how to become an ambassador and they all, uh, I don't think most people have the right intentions. And um, so the benefits for a photographer are that you can rent equipment, uh, you can borrow equipment for a long time for a project maybe. Um, it's not even the case that a camera brand gives you a camera to keep. Uh, it rarely happens. Like I don't think Leica is doing it. I don't think Sony is doing it. Fujifilm, from what I've heard from other ambassadors, Fujifilm ambassadors, they all have to pay for their cameras. Um, 
I guess uh, the GR is just uh, cheaper than a system camera, so um, they can actually give it to their ambassadors to keep. Um, so there's, you know, one benefit. Is it worth it? Yeah, maybe. Um, you don't need to buy a camera if you're using it for your main work. Um, of course, it's nice. Uh, the other benefit is that uh, you have another way to share your work because the brand takes your work and shares this, share, shares it on the website. Or maybe, for example, whenever Photokina was in Germany, um, you know, they printed my photos big and it's always exciting. I get to keep the prints. After. Okay. <laughs> yeah, That's it's great. cool. Uh, I recently threw away like a big uh, print uh, that I printed from a Pentax 645Z file, but I had to throw it away because I had no space when I was moving. And it's a photo of my brother, like a skateboard photo. Um, but actually, it was a very nice print, and it's so stupid. Now I, I regret it because <laughs> <laughs> it's very expensive buying a nice print. Yeah, anyways, but this is one thing. Um, and then, of course, if you're a photographer who, you know, wants to do workshops, it's always, you know, good to have a reputation as someone who is worthy of teaching a workshop to you. So if you see a professional photographer and you see their clients and their work, then this could be already enough. But if they, you see, oh, he's a Canon ambassador or <laughs> Fujifilm, then I think this will be easier. Uh, and I know that Rico is doing workshops in Japan in their showrooms. So if I would live in Japan, uh, I would do workshops for in their showroom. And um, actually, uh, was about to do a workshop tour in Germany with Rico. Uh, so that is something you can do, uh, a benefit of having a brand behind you. Um, but you don't get paid to be an ambassador and the, the brand only cares about the image of their product, right? So if you are an asshole photographer, <laughs> I mean, if you are not a nice guy to be around or you have a bad reputation, they, they won't even want you to be an ambassador, right? I mean, this is obvious, but um, so much about how you... Uh, how you communicate with other people in the public or as or within other photographers is very important. And so for everyone who's trying to become an ambassador, I always tell people, first of all, I ask them, why do you want to become an ambassador? And then usually the answer is because I want free stuff or, you know, I want because it's good to be an ambassador. Right. And, but they don't think about the brand, like the brand, doesn't care to show your work. They they care to sell cameras. So they, they want to know if you, first of all, already love the camera enough so that you can sell it without overselling it by being fake about it. Oh, okay. Right? So a brand needs to know that you love the camera already and you, you would do everything for them. <laughs> so that is the most important thing for if you want to become a brand ambassador is that you already love the camera so much that you can, uh, that you already use it for your photography and w best case, your, your work is already being shared and, uh, in your community. Um, 
and is seen by other people. So they recognize the project or your, your, your photography. Um, so, uh, in terms of, um, in my situation, I just provided work they needed for Photokina and for like catalogs or, or ads. Uh, whenever they needed pictures, but I didn't have a big following. I had 400 followers on Instagram at that time. Uh, and then um, I also started using Canon and stuff. So, but because of my YouTube channel, and this goes back to why uh, I said that Rico Japan was first against me because <laughs> in the public, I was known as a Fuji guy because no one knew about my Rico history, but technically I was still a Rico GR ambassador, but I always wanted to go back to the GR. So I had to convince Rico that I'm still crazy about the GR. So I was like, oh, I want to use it. Give it to me. I want to test it. And then I fell in love, again, uh, love it, uh, in love with it again. And all these other projects you saw, uh, GR project, this comes all from my idea. So how can we do interesting stuff with the GR? Uh, they, for example, asked me if I can visit some other GR ambassadors to interview them, maybe. They had no idea of concept. And they said, um, if you have a good idea, then you know, let us know and maybe we can do something on your channel. And then I came up with this concept of traveling with the GR because this is what I love to do with the GR, traveling to new places, meeting other photographers. So I just did what I love to do with this camera and um so that's the most important thing uh, to to love the camera first and then you shouldn't even uh contact brands because they get contacted by other photographers all the time they only listen to other ambassadors uh and usually there's one guy in the market team maybe or another photographer who's involved that is um uh, looking out for other you know, talents or photographers. But usually you just have to be a very open fan of a brand and have some success. Okay. Uh, that is enough. And then you should be uh, someone who gets along with, with the brand's message. Yep. Okay. Thank you. Uh, I would also like to talk about Leica a little bit. <laughs> I, I know you are probably admiring but also make a fun of Leica right you mean this <laughs> and Leica oh, is I showed, I showed too much <laughs> and Leica is really often a camera company which uh, seems to be quite polarizing on the internet right why, yeah. why so many people hate Leica and have the need to write about it on the internet you know I can only speak from my perspective, but I <laughs> I think I think Eric Kim said it uh, said it very well in your uh, last episode. Um, it's so funny because it's so true. Anyone who gets into street photography, at one point in their street photography career, they have to try a Leica because we associate you know street photography and photojournalism with a Leica camera. Uh, especially the Leica M. So I always knew I have to try it at least once uh, to see what the hype is all about. And um, I, 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 I had a, a Leica film, uh, 
Minolta film camera, rangefinder, and you know then I I already knew then what the experience is like with a rangefinder, and then I got more interested. I um, but I bought a like SL first. I don't know why. Um, probably because it's the cheapest digital Leica you could buy at that time. But then I wasn't satisfied. I wanted to have the rangefinder experience. I bought the M262, and to be honest. It took me some time to adjust, but it's 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 all about the experience of shooting a Leica. It's not so much about the results. People talk about the Leica look, but it's you know comes down to the lenses. Um, there was but it's about a question um, yeah. about that in the comments. Yeah, which we will get to get which we are going to get soon. But uh, the question was, Samuel, could you explain what exactly is Leica look? Uh, for yeah, me, it's I, very difficult to explain micro contrast, maybe color rendition. Thanks. I a think lot. it's it's all the, the the three things he mentioned. I think that's part of it. Um, people say, for example, they can pick out a photo that was shot on a queue when scrolling down the Instagram feed. They know, oh, this is a like a queue photo, and I think uh, the lenses have some lenses have a specific look. I mean. If you, if you use a Noctilux lens, people will probably know because of the crazy uh, bokeh. But um, you should have asked this, uh, uh, Thorsten. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I think it's, it's I think it's a combination of um, the the lens quality being that they have very good micro contrast. Like my 28 Elmerit, it's a very small lens, but from all the lenses I owned in the past, it has it had the best contrast and the best micro contrast and what the hell is even micro contrast right but it's just how you know when you shoot through a lens um with this lens the 28 emerald it doesn't feel like you're shooting through a lens because there's you can't really feel the glass it is so transparent so so clear um and that's i i think the like look at also the, the 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 pop you get you know the color pop or the contrast pop or the 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 bokeh pop uh, you know how the autofocus area renders and all that stuff um, uh, is it the most important thing I don't know but uh, it's something people appreciate and uh, that's all I can say okay. to be honest I think I think I'm starting to come out of my Leica phase um, but that's a topic for another time. <laughs> Because I still have some videos uh, that I have to push out where yeah, I... Yeah, Mike, Mike is kind of... Something is... Oh, oh, that's fine. It's fine. Can you hear me? It's fine now. Yeah. Oh, it was... Yeah, I'm playing with my with my Leica here. So. <laughs> yeah. They're, they are expensive and they're, ex- they're not expensive for the right people. But uh, to be real honest, if it's not about... If you don't care too much about the experience or the specific experience of using a rangefinder, then there are cameras that can probably do a better job. The, the, the technology isn't that crazy. It's actually below the, the, the other camera brands. Um, but it's all about the lenses, and the lenses are nice. Um, yeah. And no one does. No one makes rangefinders anymore. So there isn't yeah. even 
there's the you know they're the only ones in their own market that might actually so, be it when you need something specific you need a wrench finder with a full frame with a you know manual everything without any other features yeah i will say though you know when i when i used to own the range finder the like m um it is great if you like uh if you have you know if you are like prepared for the shoot uh, shot but oft, often enough it was distracting me getting a quick shot because when i'm on the street i don't want to always have my camera ready like close to my eye you know it's it's not that convenient because sometimes i do other things and um you know even the fact that you have to always pre-focus uh you know in where i live the weather isn't great so it's it's not always sunny so i have to like really get down the focus guessing uh, the mm -hmm. distance guessing and i got really good at it so probably i could just master it but it's it's just annoying like sitting somewhere and then at 2.8 or f2 like guessing the distance to a subject taking photo like blindly and then looking at the screen and you're like oh i didn't get it but on the gr i, I do this i take a photo done <laughs> and even when i'm on my bike i can take photos like one-handed on the bike i can i can pre-focus like with one hand i can like pre-focus my my lens on the m camera and then you know lift it up take a photo but what if suddenly something is in front of me and then i have to adjust again and it comes down it, to what you said it's maybe yeah. more about experience yeah and it is a, it is a tool that is that it feels like it's, it's such a cliche but it does feel like an instrument you know you you are playing everything and um it is very satisfying when you when you get the shot and i got some good photos uh, or photos that i like and it's 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 a lot of fun but i feel like leica should uh, develop something new i think what, what they did with the uh, q for example uh, of course it's so popular because it has autofocus now <laughs> so you can have that leica look but with autofocus and then i think they should um keep the m system for you know the the fans and the heritage and all of that but maybe develop a more modern camera maybe in a range finder style maybe hybrid because i don't think um i doubt that like gary winnerand or Bresson, they wouldn't use a gr if they could you know like, <laughs> i don't think they would use an m nowadays maybe because this is what they're used to but uh if you can get the shot quicker and with a smaller camera then if it's you know if you if you're about the results then there there are other options what do you think about what do you think about people covering the red dot isn't it a bit like a little hypocritical like you know you just buy this camera and then you just slap a yeah i mean i don't know it's, it's, it doesn't really matter to me what other people do but i usually do cover the logo of a camera brand because i just don't like how it looks 
uh, even on my Canon, on my Fuji, I always tape the logo. And with Leica, you have you not even have uh, you not only have a uh, white text, but you also have a red dot. <laughs> and I think it's just too much. Like, but isn't it why people buy it? This is how or? you do it. Like a very tiny the, the the model name, and then this is where you see the brand. On, on, on the corner here. Yeah, but I think it's the part of the of the brand, uh, like yeah, but being no one recognized. Yeah, but using a Olympus or Canon. Who cares? But with Leica, yeah, I know some people want to know. I want others to know what camera they're using. But um, and I also don't like how the red dot is in the middle of the M camera. Like, you know, with the cues on the side, it does look much better. So it's part of the design. But on the M. It, I always preferred the M without the red dot. Okay. So, so uh, there are more questions. I will just pick uh, one which I found. Uh, any word on the next GR model? Just wondering if and when there will be another option. And uh, there were also a question. Should I get GR3 or wait for GR4? <laughs> I was hoping that these questions will not come up during this uh, session. <laughs> mm, uh, even if I knew it, I, I wouldn't <laughs> wouldn't be allowed to tell you anything. But honestly, really honestly, um, uh, I don't know. What are your ethics when doing street photography, Samuel? Yeah. Um, so for me... Um, uh, for myself, in order for me to be comfortable on the street, I need to know why I'm doing it. And my mission on the street, or my personal mission, is to to document the street. It's not to, um, you know, I don't think about a, fo a photo that I, I don't hunt for specific images. I just want to document what's coming uh, in front of my lens. And, and therefore, I always have an answer when someone asks me, like, why are you doing this? I say, I want to capture and document the streets because maybe in 10 or 20 years, uh, we want to remember how it was living in, you know, Hamburg or Tokyo or somewhere. Uh, so I'm trying to capture the streets in more of a documentary uh, point of view. Uh, of course, I try to put myself in the image. Um, I lean towards specific uh, like um, mo motifs. Um, but yeah, I my general rule is to not leave a negative experience for my subjects. So if I can be invisible, I will choose to be invisible. And my way of shooting is very discreet. If it's an event or a big public space i can be a little bit more open about it i'm never hiding my camera i always have it around me on my hands and I often even with the gr even though it has no viewfinder uh, i walk around the city like this all the time <laughs> or or like this uh, no no that's not true if I, but more like you know having it here because um if i do this then it looks a little sneaky <laughs> okay and this is also a little strange uh, although I do this sometimes, but when I have the camera close, like I can look at the screen, it does look kind of like I'm checking photos or, you know, looking at the phone. 
Mm. Uh, I just like how it feels. It's almost like shooting with your eye because it's your uh, point of view of your eye. And uh, that's, yeah, so don't, I don't show, uh, I don't hide my camera in public. Uh, I let everyone know who wants to know uh, why I'm doing it. And that's pretty much it. Um, Are there subjects I, you don't take per picture of? Pictures of? Um, only if I feel like it is going to make my subject very uncomfortable. Um, for example, let's say it's, it's a disabled person in a wheelchair, maybe having like a weird expression or something. And But I, I still want to photograph that person because in the scene, it, it makes it an interesting scene. I might take a photo of the scene, but the moment I feel like I'm making it too much about this person, um, I try to avoid uh, making someone uncomfortable. Uh, I rather ask them for a photo. If, okay. uh, if, it, if I know, sometimes I just feel it. It's always children, you know. I love photographing children, but sometimes you see the parents already being very suspicious, protective, suspicious, and um, you just have to read the the, the, the vibes, <laughs> the atmosphere. Like if it's a children's playground, and you know, I was in Cologne uh, recently, and there was a guy with uh, blowing like water bubbles, and children were playing, and of course I can take photos of this scene because it's interesting for everyone. Um, and I'm not making it really about like children or disabled people or homeless people. Um, so if if it's be about the person, if it's becoming about that person, then why not just take a portrait or, or speak to that uh, subject? Because uh, I usually have people as uh, part of a scene, not as the main subject. So I don't have that problem because everyone is just part of a big scene. So that's the only thing I try to avoid is is making it about someone. Uh, if I know I can potentially uh, make their day worse. Okay. Because they, they think, oh, he's just taking a photo of me because I'm in a wheelchair or because, I don't know, they, they start to think about things. So if I don't say anything, they, you know, I'm just assuming, but usually my, my gut feeling is right. So... I trust my gut and uh, I'm more of an observer and street scene photographer, maybe. Okay. Yeah. So I saved my last question for... Bring it. For the end, <laughs> I guess. So what is the hardest part of taking care of chickens? <laughs> that is your last question. Yeah. Uh, the hardest part is getting used to waking up early enough to let them out of their cages. But you did make uh, out yeah, of the right? I bought um, machine. Okay. I bought this here. This is uh, something <laughs> you, you need. Uh, it is uh, something that opens your door automatically. You can set a timer. It has a light sensor. So will you add an affiliate link for that in your, um, <laughs> on your YouTube channel? I think the one that I showed you has only been sold uh, uh, in, in Germany. In Germany. <laughs> yeah, I mean, 
I don't know. I, I'm, I'm a beginner. I'm just learning how to and raise And how do you chicken. get them back? Like, I can imagine in the morning, you just, yeah. you know, open it and they run outside. But how do you get them back for the night? They, they just they, go they back. Just, ah, they just go back? Yeah. That's really yeah, simple. Yeah, you just wait for them to go back and then you close the door. Okay, that's not that hard. It's pretty easy, yeah. <laughs> and do you buy like a special, like a feeding, like a, you know, something to feed them? Uh, no, I just, uh, everything I use, I got from the previous owner of the house and the chickens. Um, it's a very simple, uh, like a pot where you put the uh, grains and stuff. And I feed them sometimes during the day. Uh, it's more, more to give them like a treat, uh, like dried, uh, like warms. Okay. <laughs> and this is like a snack for them. And can you uh, pet them? What? Like, can you can you pet them? Can you? Yeah, yeah. Like a... Yeah, you can do that. They're still a little scared. I I don't think they they really love me. They like <laughs> me. But the smaller chickens, they 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 know that I'm giving them food, so they come to me and they often jump to your oh, hand that's... as well. And they do. They give us uh, great eggs. Okay. Eggs that have a lot of egg yolk and less egg white. Okay. So more of the stuff I, I like about eggs. <laughs> yeah. And we really... never have to buy eggs. We always have enough eggs now. Uh, so. That's that's cool. You should I really watch the, the movie the, the Chicken People. You you will love that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> They will probably show up in my future videos as test subjects. Yeah, but I saw some photographs and it looks really like the black and white. It looks really artistic, yeah, it's, it's, right? Yeah, it's nice. Thank you once again for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, make sure to subscribe wherever you're listening to it. Please give this podcast five star rating, review, and please take a screenshot and throw it out on your Instagram stories so other people might find it as well. Come back next week because I will be talking with another interesting guest about photography. In case you would like to listen to shorter episodes more frequently, there is a new podcast called Best of About Photography and it is updated daily with highlights from the interviews. I am very happy you are tuning in for another episode of Podcast About Photography. Until next time.